We're picking up the, the rest of the chapter. Last week we looked at the first 13 verses. The first 13 verses of the chapter basically describe how Solomon eventually begins to worship false gods. And it, I guess the thing for me, and actually before we go any further, let's ask God's blessing in this time. Lord, we ask that you'd bless now the study of your word. You'd speak to our hearts, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the valuable lessons that your word teaches us. And help us, Lord, to treasure your word in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to consider these things. Help us to learn, Lord, from the mistakes of others as well, as well as the, the things that are done right. Lord, help us to, to learn, Lord, from others, the experience that others have experienced, Lord, in your word. We love you, Lord. We just give you this time, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Um, you know, as we began to looked at, you know, see the end of Solomon's reign, because this chapter really chronicles the end of Solomon's reign. In chapter 11, verse 6, it says that Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. And um, in verse 4, it tells us the time frame as to when. It came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And the thing that this thing makes me realize, and I mentioned it last week too, but again, for me, it's just something that is a reminder you can never take your walk with the Lord for granted. You can never think, okay, I'm immune to such things or immune to certain temptations or, or I've walked with the Lord a long time. I'm never going to fall away from God. And yet, you know, David commits his sin with Bathsheba later on in his life. And Solomon, it's clear after, you know, probably times of being faithful to the Lord, eventually his sin catches up with him. Eventually his disobedience catches up with him because God's word tells him not to multiply his wives or multiply his wealth or multiply his horses and his strengthening of his army. All these things Solomon did, contrary to what God's word said, and eventually then it catches up with him. And what makes me sad is just, again, too, when I read chapters like this and you see the fall of somebody that, again, God used in a mighty way, you know, there is no doubt about it. And we have, you know, the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, again, too, that, that there are valuable lessons from those books that the Lord uses his Holy Spirit working through Solomon to pen those, those particular books of the Bible. But it's sad to me because there's a way that it could be described that Solomon didn't finish well. He didn't finish well. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul talks about, you know, coming to the end of his life. And he knows, you know, that he, his life is on the line. He's writing from prison. He knows that, again, too, you know, the, the life that he has lived, the, the faithfulness and the obedience to God that he has kept. And he writes in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Paul was a guy that finished his course. He finished well. I think as we read again to, the, to this particular chapter, it could be said that Solomon didn't finish well. And as a result of Solomon's sin, God still does a work, and it's not probably what we think he would do, but there are consequences to sin. But I think in, in the consequences, God is wanting repentance. He's wanting to see a change. He uses that. He uses the trials. He uses the consequences. If there weren't consequences to our sins, then maybe we would just simply continue in sin. And actually, again, too, Solomon says something very similar to that in Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 8, where he says, because judgment, and actually I'm going to turn there just because I want to get it right. I'm pretty sure it's Ecclesiastes chapter 8, because I love this particular verse just because of what it says, and it points out how that the consequences of sin aren't always immediate, and because of that, then our hearts are fixed on doing evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. But eventually, it doesn't say that there's, there's not any consequences, it just says that the consequences don't always come quickly. But when the consequences do come, I believe that the Lord wants to use those things. You know, we're kind of approaching, you know, the end of October. We're going into November, and Thanksgiving is coming up. And I've even have seen quite a bit of Christmas uh, decorations and things marketing towards Christmas starting to take place in some of the stores and, and at Costco and Sam's Club as well. One of my favorite stories during Christmas time, I've shared this before, is um, uh, the, the classic Christmas carol about Ebenezer Scrooge. And at the end, you know, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it too bad, but at the end, you know, as Scrooge is shown his grave, he comes to the realization that these three spirits that have shown him his past, his present, and his probable future, he realizes that there has to be a reason that these things have been shown to him. Why show him these things if there isn't an opportunity to change, to repent? And that's, the, the, to me, the beauty of that story. Because at the end, he repents. And what's sad is that Solomon, the Lord is going to use adversaries that I believe that are there for the purpose of trying to bring about a repentance in the life of Solomon. I, I think part of the problem is that Solomon has so much. He has wealth. He has power. He has women. He has everything. And even though there are adversaries that are mentioned in the beginning in verse 14, I think it's just hard for him to come to that place of repentance, but it says in, in verse 14 of our chapter that the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon. Hadad the Edomite, he was of the king's seed in Edom, speaking of the king's uh, 
king of Edom's seed or offspring. It says in verse 15, For it came to pass when David was in Edom, and Joab, the captain of the host, was gone up to bury the slain after he had smitten every male in Edom. For six months did Joab remain there with all Israel until he had cut off every male in Edom. So it, it tells us in previous chapters, I believe in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verses 12 and 13, tells us that basically David established after the defeat of Edom, he establishes these garrisons there. I mean, he has taken control. And what God's word is telling us here, the other thing that David does at this time, it doesn't tell us that in 2 Samuel or in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, but it tells us that basically every man is wiped out. And the purpose for that not only was a judgment of sin, but again, too, it would weaken them as a nation. It would set them back militarily probably 40 to 80 years before they would have maybe a fighting force that, that could even ever threaten Israel again. But as a result of that, we see this guy, Hadad, emerge from this. He was of the royal lineage of the Edomites, and as a result, there in verse 17, it says that he fled. And certain of the Edomites of his father's servants with him to go to Egypt, Hadad being yet a little child. So this happens early in his life. And it says in verse 18 that they arose out of Midian and came to Paran. And they took men with them out of Paran and they came to Egypt. And they came to Egypt unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which gave him a house and appointed him, Old King James's victuals, or as Granny from the Beverly Hillbillies used to say, vittles, and gave him land. So Hadad finds refuge in Egypt, and not only does he find refuge, but he is established there and welcomed there by the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's given supplies, he's given a house, he's given even given land. And in verse 19, and, and again too, I think maybe too what Pharaoh is doing is he's establishing an alliance because he knows, yes, even though the Edomites are wiped out, the day will come where maybe they will rise once again as a nation. And if, if, if Pharaoh has shown this kindness to the king's, you know, king of Edom's lineage, then he's hoping that it'll benefit him maybe at some point in the future. And it says in verse 19 that Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him to wife the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes, the queen. And the sister of Taphanes bare him Jenubath, his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jenubath was of, the, of Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. I mean, this sound, to me, it sounds very similar to the story of Moses as well. Uh, being raised in the household of Pharaoh. And it says in verse 21 that when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the captain of the host, was dead, Hadad said unto Pharaoh, Hey, Dad. No, hey, Dad. <laughs> said unto Pharaoh, Let me depart that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said unto him, but what hast thou lacked with me that, behold, you seek to go to your own country? And he answered, Nothing. Howbeit, let me go in any wise. And I, I believe probably, even though it's not told here, but at the beginning there in verse 14, it says that the Lord is the one that's stirring him up as an adversary to Solomon. 
he returns to his own country, I believe, for the purpose to be able to, again, now as a, an old, you know, as a, a man, before he was a child, but now as a man, he's able to rally whatever men are left there and eat them and establish some type of, it's believed, you know, raiding forces that would attack Israel or some of the garrisons of Israel. And so he, he's going to begin to cause problems for Solomon. And the Lord's the one that's actually doing the stirring up. He's the one that's stirring up Hadad against Solomon. In verse 23, it describes another one. Now, there's two of them that are going to be mentioned here, and I would just simply view these enemies as those enemies that are from without. But the last one that the Lord is going to raise up is an enemy from within. And it says here in verse 23 that Solomon stirred up another adversary, Rezin, the son of Eliada, which fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So the circumstance with Rezin is that he is actually leaving Hadadezer, and it doesn't tell us why, but he leaves his king in rebellion. And it says then in verse 24 that he gathered men unto him and became captain over a band. And it says that when David slew them of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt therein and reigned in Damascus. So kind of the timing of it was that Rezin rebels against his king. And at the same time as he is rebelling and gathering men in his own rebellion, David is fighting against the king and against his forces, Zobah and Damascus. And as a result of wiping him out and weakening him, it establishes then resin, and as a result, resin becomes an adversary to Solomon. And verse 25, it says that he was adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the mischief that Hadad did, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. So those are the two adversaries from without, the Edomites and the Syrians. And in verse 26, it says that, and now this is the one that's from within. And as I read this, and as you listen to the details and the circumstance and how this unfolds, I want you to notice maybe a pattern because there's such similarity to this as to another example I'm going to sh share with you from the scriptures. But it says in verse 26, and this is significant because this is really um, the, the guy that is significant for the, the nation of Israel from this point forward. It says in verse 26 that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite, so he was of the tribe of Ephraim, of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a, a widow woman, a widow woman. That's not Elmer Fudd saying a little woman. It, it means a woman who is a widow. Uh, even he lifted up his hand against the king, and this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Milo. Old King James says Milo. In the newer translations, it tells us what this is. Solomon is actually building and establishing, you know, the, the terraces that lead up to the Temple Mount area, or, or the rampart, and so he is building that and and repairing breaches in the city of David, as it says there in verse 27. 
So it would seem that as he describes Jeroboam and his involvement, it seemed that maybe Jeroboam was involved in this particular project. And it says in verse 28 that the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. So he initially sees Jeroboam as a really industrious and faithful guy, so he puts him in charge of the house of Joseph. I believe he's talking about the house of Joseph as it pertains to this particular building project. Verse 29, it says that it came to pass at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him in the way. Now, this is the first time we're introduced to the prophet Ahijah. We're going to see him coming up in the next couple of chapters, especially in chapter 14 and 15 as well. Ahijah is to Jeroboam what the prophet Samuel is to David. So I'm already beginning kind of to show you a similarity or a pattern. But as Jeroboam goes out of the city of Jerusalem, it doesn't tell us why or what he's doing. It could be official business. could be that he's traveling back home. But Ahijah the Shilonite finds him in the way, and he had clad himself with a new garment, and they too were alone in the field. There's some question as to who's the one that's wearing the new garment. Is it Jeroboam or is it Ahijah? I believe the I believe the newer translations make it or word it and make it sound as if it's Ahijah the prophet that's wearing the garment. In the old King James, in the very next verse, it says that Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it or tore it into 12 pieces. It almost sounds like Ahijah is taking the garment off of Jeroboam. I tend to actually lean towards um, the idea that it's actually uh, Ahijah that's wearing the garment. And the reason being is, uh, I'll explain it to you in a minute, but what happens is, so Ahijah comes to Jeroboam, he sees Jeroboam, Ahijah's wearing this new garment, at least that's my understanding. It could be Jeroboam. It's not as important as to who's wearing the garment as to what Ahijah the prophet does. And when he does, he, he tears it up into 12 pieces. He rips this new garment into 12 pieces. In verse 31, he said unto Jeroboam, Take thee 10 pieces, for thus saith the Lord God, the God of Israel, behold, I will rend or tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to thee. Well, now that I read that, now I think it is actually uh, Jeroboam that's wearing the garment because, well, okay, I go back and forth on this and it's probably not that important. But it says in verse 32, but he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. So as a kind of a demonstration as to the work that God is going to do, and I think it's represented in the fact that it's a new garment. It's a new work that God is going to do. The garment represents the nation. And because of Solomon's sin, the nation is going to be torn apart. But ten of those tribes or pieces are given to Jeroboam. And the son of David, which will be Rehoboam, he is not only going to be given the tribe of Judah, but he's going to be given another piece of the pie of the, the tribes, and it'll be the tribe of Benjamin. 
but he's given he's given these this tribe not for anything that he has done or anything that Solomon has done but because God is still blessing David for his faithfulness in the things that he has done. And again, too, it's a, for me, it's a beautiful picture of how gracious and merciful God is. Even generations after David, God is still keeping his promise to David, even though now his sons have departed. His son Solomon has departed from worshiping God. And we're going to begin to see that Rehoboam isn't much better, but again, it's something that God's going to do. And at this point, then the nation of Israel is going to be divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel made up of the ten tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah made up of the two tribes. But like I said, for me it makes sense. I'll just give you the two points of view for me, just so you can figure out which one you like better. You know, if Ahijah the prophet is going out, he's going to grab the king's garment and tear it up? I don't know. I mean, how would he even know that the king was wearing a new garment at the time? I mean, maybe that's not that important. So that's why uh, that's, I could make that argument that Ahijah is the one that's wearing the new garment because it illustrates the new work that God is going to do. But at the same time, if it is Jeroboam wearing the garment and the fact that he tears it from him, it illustrates what God is going to do to Solomon. He's going to tear the kingdom from him. So again, too, you can make an argument both ways. Um, what's important is the fact that God is going to do this and how the kingdom is going to be divided as a result. And he explains or he tells Jeroboam the reason why in verse 33, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments as did David his father. Even as I say that, you know, the, the commandments of God, the statutes of God, they're important. They're important for us to keep and to know. I think we... Many times as Christians think, well, you know, I'm under grace. We are under grace. But even in the Old Testament, God's people were under grace. They were still expected to keep the commandments of God. And if they didn't keep the commandments or the statutes of God, there were consequences as a result. And so he points out that Solomon has not done this that he wasn't like his father David in all these things. Verse 34, he says, Howbeit I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, whom I have chose, because he kept my commandments and my statutes. Again, to David is the reference point. Verse 35, But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto you, even ten tribes. Verse 36, and unto his son will I give one tribe. This is the third time now that he is saying this. That David, my servant, may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. And I will take thee, and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desires, and shall be a king over Israel. And it shall be that if you will hearken, now this is what God is saying through the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam. I mean, again, to, I mean, listen to the, the covenant God is wanting to make with him. 
He says there in verse 38, It shall be if you will hearken unto all that I command you, and will walk in all my ways, and do that, do that is right in my sight, and keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel unto thee, and, and I will... For this afflict the offspring of David, but not forever. So, even as I say all of this, and, and actually one more verse I want to read, and it's verse 40. When Solomon hears what has been communicated to Jeroboam, how that God is wanting to make a covenant with Jeroboam. And again, too, Solomon's not in any immediate danger. Basically, what God has said is this isn't going to happen in Solomon's lifetime. But this is going to happen with Solomon's son. Um, but it, it, notice what Solomon's reaction is in verse 40. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt unto Shishak, the king of Egypt. And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So, I've already kind of tipped my cards and kind of showed, mentioned to you that this sounds so familiar to something else that we've already seen previously. I'm going to throw it out to you and tell me what you think it sounds like or what's the parallel here. Saul and David, exactly. I mean, you can go down point by point. God establishes Saul to be king, but Saul is disqualified from being king because of his disobedience. Solomon is established as king as well. And there is a different area of disobedience for Solomon, and it's that he is worshiping these false gods. But again, too, it comes under the big umbrella of, of disobedience. So there's disobedience. Second way in which that's similar, there's a parallel, is that Saul recognizes the favor of God on David. And as a result, David is drawn in to be a servant to Saul, first as a harp keeper, and then as, a, again, to after the defeat of uh, uh, Goliath, he's brought in and he's promoted to be captain in the army of Saul. Well, that's the thing. Solomon does the same thing or something similar with Jeroboam. You know, in this particular building project, so he, he recognizes that he's this industrious guy, that he's this hard worker, and as a result, he ends up promoting him and makes him the head over the house of Joseph in verse 28. The other thing is, is that Solomon does something, um, I'm sorry, that David is anointed to be the next king by the prophet Samuel in the same way Jeroboam is being told that he is going to be the next king by the prophet Ahijah. The other way in which it's similar is that God is wanting to make a, a covenant with Jeroboam in the same way that he made a covenant with David and to establish his house. But the other thing in which there's a similarity is that when Saul hears or realizes that David is God's choice to be the next king. And again, too, for Saul, you know, he is immediately threatened and there's jealousy. And he's also, too, he warns Jonathan, his son, you know what, if the son of Jesse lives or survives, if David lives or survives, 
you're not going to be king. He's basically telling Jonathan to turn on his friend and warns him, hey, you're not going to be king someday. You would be king, but instead David's the one that's going to end up being king. And the, and the, and the, the th same thing is, is that Solomon's not in any immediate danger of being replaced as king, but he's thinking about his legacy. He's thinking about his son. And when he realizes that now Jeroboam is God's choice, that God is wanting to establish a covenant with him as well, he tries to kill him. And again, too, Solomon has become more like Saul than he has like David, his father. It's just, to me, it's just a sad thing that sometimes we drift from God and it doesn't probably, it, you know, it doesn't happen over the, you know, just immediately, but it happens slowly and gradually and the heart, you know, is drawn away and, and, and you're worn down by the temptations and eventually begin to compromise or give in to these things. And in the end, you're acting like Saul. And the chapter closes and it says that the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Um, it could be that what's being referenced here is a book that we don't have in the Bible because uh, there's evidently more or other things that, that have, haven't been accounted for. Even too, given the number of, of Proverbs that, that, that Solomon's attributed to, I think it was 3,000. You know, we don't have that many Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. It could be, though, too, that some of these things are references to um, Solomon and Chronicles as well. But uh, I, I think probably the belief is, is that there was a, a book that chronicled the acts of Solomon that maybe we just don't have. And, uh, but he says all, the writer says all these things are written in the book of the acts of Solomon. And, and again, too, maybe... Maybe these things aren't available to us because, again, um, they don't draw a person closer to God, but it chronicles the fall of a man from God and from serving the Lord. Uh, we, we won't know or we'll never know. But in verse 42 it says, In the time of Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years, same amount of time that his, his father David reigned as king. In verse 43, it says that Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his stead. Um, it's just sad. That's all I've got to say. It just, uh, for me, it, it just, uh, again, too, serves as, uh, as an exhortation, as a warning to finish well to remain faithful, to recognize if God is chastening for the purpose of bringing about repentance, to recognize that. But again, too, you know, the scripture says that if any man thinks he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. The problem many times is pride. We don't recognize or see how far we've gotten away from God. And maybe it's only when we are confronted by adversaries that God has stirred up that it would cause us to call out on him, call out to the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time.
Thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, for the lessons of your word. At times they're encouraging, but at times, Lord, they're just instructional for us and, and they provide exhortation and admonition. And I pray, God, that that's the case with this, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. It speaks to our hearts. It, it illustrates, Lord, uh, just the importance of being obedient to you. I pray, God, that we wouldn't stray. I pray, God, that in these last days where there is so much that would want to draw our heart away or temptations or even things that would harden our heart, Lord, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out and, Lord, that we would guard against having a hardened heart, Lord, that our hearts would always be soft to you, that our ears would always be open to the things that your Spirit speaks. And, Lord, that we would always be faithful and obedient, Lord. We'd cling to you in love. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You're free. <laughs>